0: I didn't like it on the first day, and I didn't like it on the last. But there was this moment in the middle of it, that was like nothing that came before or nothing that came after, because suddenly me and my little irascible cohort, we were plucked out of maths and science and physical education. And for seven days and for seven nights we entered the extraordinary temenos of a local theatre, a local arts centre called Stamford Arts Centre. And it was there we were thoroughly drubbed and immersed in the epic story of Beowulf that we then turned into a play as little nine and ten-year-olds. I remember the warm, invitational darkness of the empty theatre. I remember something seductive about the stage lights. I remember a real camaraderie between me and my little mates. I remember the intoxication of being witnessed for the first time by an audience. And although I could barely see past the first or second row, my hallucinatory energy, which I had as a child, would often make out in the crowd, maybe Huckleberry Finn or Boudicca. I'd look again and maybe there was... I'm sure that was Evil Knievel sitting there with the popcorn in his helmet. Cucullin, Maid Marian. And once on the last night, I swore towards the back the silhouette of Joan Jett, with her heels on the uh, seat in front. (laughs) These things are impressionable on a young man. I'd love to tell you, of course, that uh, I was immediately recognised for greatness and placed in the lead role, but I was not. I was a spear carrier somewhere in the second or the third row. But the real magic of the thing... The real magic of theatre is that actually it didn't really matter. And I already felt like the kid with the Willy Wonka golden ticket simply by being in the place. And I have remained open to wonder, especially the wonder of theatre ever since. It's that kind of wonder I carry with me when I go and see uh, our guest today, my friend Mark Rylance in whatever play he happens to be in at the time or whatever film. You may remember a few weeks ago I told the story of Taliesin and how he took a gulp or a sip or a little bit of moisture at the end of his finger from Keridwen's cauldron and suddenly had the ability to become a racing hare or a salmon or even a grain of wheat. And that kind of porosity... That kind of shape leap I really think of in Mark's work and and I always think of Mark as I'm telling that story. He always appears in my imagination in it because there's something so granular about his skills. It's as if there are personalities arising up from the pores of his skin. I suppose like, uh, like the poets say, he contains multitudes. You may have seen him at the Globe Theatre over the years. You may have seen him in the Oscar-winning performance in Bridge of Spies. You could have seen him as Thomas Cromwell in Wolf Hall. You could have seen him as the irascible, pan-like and mystical Rooster Byron in the best play of the 21st century, Jez Butterworth's Jerusalem. There are any number of places you could have bumped into him. And Mark remains, for my money, one of the very most interesting people that I know. So let's not waste any more time. We'll go and meet our conversationalist today, Sir Mark Rylance. Mark, thank you ever so much for taking this time. I really appreciate it. Oh,
1: God, I wish I could spend many days and hours with you, Martin. Perhaps we will do more of that as we get older now. Yeah.
0: Yes. I remember you once, you were once talking about the danger in acting and storytelling when there's a night where everything works and everyone around you has just told you that it works. And the temptation is, as you described, to reheat the meal (laughs) the next night. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things, It's part of these conversations I'm having. I was talking to a rabbi last night whose family, in the midst of everything that's happening with Palestine and Israel right now, his family are in a shelter in the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. So you get a very real sense of a a different element of chaos there. Mm -hmm. But this feeling of not reheating the meal is something... Next week I'm preparing to be out, I suppose, in public again, doing what I've done for a long time but I'm taking your mandate to heart. I'm not prepared to reheat the meal I was giving 18 months ago. Yeah. I want to stay alive to whatever is inevitably arising from this kind of chaos. Yeah, And so I was, I was kind of wondering where you were with that as well. It feels like, um, though it's only been a little over a year, it feels
1: like a 10-year period, doesn't it? It feels a long period. Yeah. My experience was a curious one because we were in America working on this big project about steel, about the making of steel that I've been haunted by since two thousand and two, when I first visited Pittsburgh. And We were up in the Minneapolis actually, workshopping it at the Guthrie Theater when all the theaters closed down. And my wife said, "Well, we really should go visit our daughter before we head home." And so we went to Joshua Tree to visit our daughter and. And then the lockdown hit, and so we were in Joshua Tree for um, three months and watched the desert come into bloom. And uh, I wasn't initially able to work on any, sto- any of these many stories. I'm surrounded by stories at the moment, five or six, maybe ten, actually, all, all cooking around me. Um, but initially, I couldn't do anything. No, that's not true. No, I, I worked on Paul King's North's The Wake a bit. But mostly I found myself very um, fired by FDR's Civilian Conservation Corps idea. And, and the number. It was like there was a kind of magic in the numbers that he'd got 300,000 people working within three months and then kept that going for 10 years up until the war, planting millions of trees and creating parks and regenerating soil, all the kind of things that we need now. And I was getting news that there were 300,000, roughly speaking, freelance workers in the theater who were unemployed and being thrown out, really without furlough or any of the help that the permanent staff were getting. So I went down a path for about three or four months of investigating all these different environmental groups in, in England and eventually proposing a thing called National Nature Service, that there would be a National Nature Service that would give employment uh to young people to anyone really who wanted to to go out and do all you know restoring the 98 percent of wetlands that we've lost um which are even better carbon sink and obviously a great uh, preparation for the rising of the waters i got very involved in all this activism and then hit a kind of wall of despair as it hit the politics and budgets and boris johnson's office and all that and I don't know. I just got very tired and dispirited of my role as an activist, of being someone who's telling other people what I think they should do. I, it just started to really not feel right to me at all that my way was more magnetic and, and story-based to draw people towards things if they wanted to on a much freer basis by by um, involving myself in stories. So I, I I've got quite involved with environmentalists and eventually wanted to, um, eventually have settled on the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, which is a wonderful group of people, and, and got very interested in that area between the sea and the land, yeah. the wetlands, yeah. and how yeah. beautiful it is, and, and, and thought, I really want to focus myself in one area rather than be all over the place and actually walk the talk and be involved in the work myself rather than be um, an advocate or a politician or fundraiser or celebrity talking about stuff. I, I want to know what I'm doing. But then I've really got, I've just found the time very, very wonderful for working on stories. I've been better with my meditations, better with my, um, what I would call preparing the grail of my receptive imagination, my psyche, my soul. Mm. And I feel... I feel like it's really, it's works like a magnet. I feel very, very um, like a channel is open and been opened. And I think that's not just me, but the time Yeah. that I see. I do feel that we are very, being very guided in this and being offered things, but we have to, the work we have to do is prepare ourselves and make ourselves open to that and, and be able to hold that. I think there is light in, in the chaos of it all. I see people not making the change and talking about wanting to get things back to normal and all that stuff. I don't know, I, it's very difficult to know what the actual zeitgeist is and wh- where the majority of people are. Mm. Something massively is changing and, is, and has changed. And to me, this little corona virus, which comes with the name of the crown, mm. is a great ancestral teacher in itself. I see consciousness everywhere. I feel consciousness in all matter, and particularly in a living uh, virus or bacteria, whatever it is. I think it's it's definitely a teacher. Yeah. And though it's very, very tragic, the, the loss of lives and everything. I mean, we just lost a little dog two days ago, and that's caught us up.
0: Oh, yeah. That,
1: that's not even a human being with the complexity of links and karma of human beings. Um, though that's very sad. When you when you step back from it, what are there two hundred species a day that are going extinct? I mean, we're not yeah. we're not yeah. disconnected. We're connected, and and uh, our health. Uh, I'm not anti-vax, but I, I I don't think I think we've got to get over this idea of trying to cover up and suppress problems. We're not well because the water we drink, the air we breathe, the soil we plant our food in is not well. Yeah. Our immune system needs those things to is connected to the immune system of the world. It seems to me, I'm a little bit not so excited about just kick starting my immune system to a different toxic by putting something in it that will awaken. I'm a little bit more about awakening my consciousness to living more healthily, and that means the world being healthier. And I don't think we're going to get, I don't think we're going to get a free pass uh, through this until no. we start to think about health on all the different levels, physical, psychological, spiritual. All these things are interconnected and happening, aren't they?
0: They are. In terms of interconnectedness, I was thinking about an experience I had with you a few years ago when we were with Paul Kingsnorth at the Edinburgh Festival. And after the event, the first strange thing that happened is we came back into our dressing room and standing there was... (laughs) Reverend Jesse Jackson Yeah We we sort of staggered out We'd been telling stories together In fact we'd found We were telling in a way A wetland story I'd found a East Anglian version Of Iron John But with all these You know with this, It's a swamp version So we told that But afterwards we went for a meal And one of the things you said Is you said The guy that you need to meet Is someone called Jez Butterworth <laughs> And I thought, well, that's an interesting name. And I think maybe you showed me a picture and that was it. I went to sleep. Fly home the next day from Edinburgh to Exeter Airport. Exeter Airport is utterly empty. There is not a soul in it other than Jez Butterworth. No. Yeah. Wow. He's just standing there. What? Uh, It was a very strange experience. And he just moved from, I think, probably Somerset or somewhere – to devon with his beloved yeah and i met them there in the full they were just glowing human beings at that moment wow and i mean you you can the chances of that happening from any form of logic are so tiny yeah but from manifestation to thought was a period of hours
1: yeah i find that link has got much stronger to be honest i'm interested to go back into work coming back to your idea of being nakedly in the present, you know, not Mm. reheating old solutions. I mean, one has to come, of course, with craft and discipline to a gathering when you're leading a Mm. gathering or I'm leading a play or taking part in a film or a play. One has to come, of course. It's not that one comes out of one's head drunk or stoned or not able to drive the vehicle. But, but the objective is to be present, it feels to me, and to be, to be a conduit and get the room into a place where the whole room is receiving rather than just uh,
0: yeah reheating a meal. Mm. The alchemists had a lovely phrase, the vas bene clausum, means the well-sealed vessel, the well-sealed vessel, which funnily enough reminds me of your image of the grail. And I think for me in in lockdown, I've been looking at (laughs) how leaky is my well-sealed vessel. (laughs) Uh, And in a way, what you're saying about the meditation, I like this idea that, of course, we commit to radical uncertainty in a moment like this. But what we can do is be as ready for those happy accidents as we possibly can. And whether that's storytelling, meditation, sitting in a wild place, sitting in an urban place, but some form of practice uh, for me, I like, I've just gone through the heartbreak of losing my cat. Oh, yeah. And and it was, I, it was unutterably sad. Mm. And also because we were sealed away and locked, I couldn't really get a vet. I haven't been around a dying animal like that before, so I wasn't sure whether she should be put down. I'm not sure I could bear doing that. Um, what happened? She, in the end, I, I, I was just with her for about three or four days and her breathing got more and more labored. Uh, I made herself a little place by the radiator in my bedroom. And you would be aware all night, you know, you're listening to their breathing and you and you keep going up to them and putting your head next to theirs and, and just telling them how much you've loved them for 15 years and, and how special they've been and, and and all of that. And then suddenly I had a feeling that I had to open the door to the bedroom and let her go wherever she wanted to go in the house. And sure enough, she quickly disappears and she crawls up the stairs Christ knows how she did it, into the attic, into the furthest point of the attic, underneath where my paintings are stacked, and she died. Wow. Uh, and I loved her. You know, I really loved her, Bessie. And her husband, the dear ha- dear Harry, uh, I, I did what I've told you're meant to do with animals, which is to pick the animal up and show it to their partner in a way, just so they know. That this thing has happened. And I and then I me and and Cara and Dulcie, we buried Bessie. But what's interesting is that although Harry would have had no real way of knowing where Bessie was buried, he constantly goes there. And he just sits like a little old man where she's buried. You've done
1: that very, very well. We took little Judy, the dog, who's just passed to the vet. You know, she was so unwell, and uh, you, you know, we thought we thought we have to help with her pain, or maybe there's some way we can recover her with medicine. But it ended up leaving us a little concerned because, um, you know, she spent her last days in the vet's hospital, and eventually, when it became clear that you know she was not going to recover or get better, and she was having such difficulty breathing, my wife Claire had to had to be with her and have her put down. Mm. And we buried her in the back garden, but it was interesting on that very day that she passed, her husband, her partner, Apache, our other dog, was here with me. I couldn't be up in London, and he he really went quiet and shook all day long. And I'm regretting now that we weren't able to show him what's happened uh, with Judy. So I think you've done that r- really, really well, keeping her at home and having that last effort of her to climb up to your paintings and to the ceiling
0: and give you that that story that's her speaking isn't it it is her speaking and one miraculous event afterwards was a few days go by harry is clearly miserable and has taken to just following me around everywhere i go harry goes to and he's on the end of the bed and in the middle of the night deeply i live in a very rural remote location we both started to hear a cat mewing under the window. Now in half a decade of living there, there's no cats. There's nothing. There's just us. Yeah. But sure enough, there's this mewing and being of the temperament that I am, I was quite comfortable in my semi asleepness to just presume it was Bessie in some fashion. Yeah. And I didn't worry I just don't worry about those things. Yeah. But it continued. And one morning at about twenty to seven, the mew—it's light outside. I'm fully conscious, and the mewing is continuing. And I crawl up to the window because it's like a this cat is calling to Harry. And I I look out of the window, and sure enough, there is um, an enormous wild cat. Wow! And the moment it sees me, it's beautiful, kind of charcoal color, big bushy tail, almost as big as a fox it just shoots off into the forest. It's cheered us up no end. Wow. <laughs> no idea what it is or what it's about, but that's it was some strange thing. And what it's done for Harry is it's given, him, it's given him something else to be thinking about. So he potters around the garden, checking out the spray of the cat that clearly wants to be friends. It wasn't remotely aggressive. But I don't think for a second it would have shown up yeah, yeah. without the death of Bessie.
1: You remind me about all that we're learning or that is coming into the public consciousness about the interconnected communication of trees and mushrooms and obviously between animals, the return of souls, that the soul of a, of a pet you've had will return in some other form or maybe this wild cat you know, is related in some way or is conscious and comes as a messenger from Bessie. There's a lot to awaken to, isn't there?
0: Mm.
1: I, coming back to this thing about how do you prepare a meal that's not reheating a former beautiful meal that happened the last time you told a story, the last time I acted a story. And I'm suddenly coming into my head is, oh, talk about what you do is you focus on the intention rather than the form. So you you focus as you come in, I don't know, to the opening scene of Hamlet, which went very well last night, (laughs) and you you really focus on what you need and what your objective is, rather than on the um, memory of the form. And you, you try and let the memory of the form go. It's difficult because the form is quite attached, particularly if you hold on to the form for a few performances and don't let it go, then it gets more ingrained and more attached. But the way is really to, to harness your, your cart to, the, to your intention. What's your intention with this group who are here gathered tonight? And I mean, certainly for me, this, this enforced isolation means there's such excitement for me about um, being present with a group of people, being present with other actors, being in the same room, in the same space. I hope I'm going to be up to that new challenge of really trusting the, um, yeah. the inspiration from the light and from the bacteria. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Now, because you've mentioned the word cart, I have to bring up my great love of the idea of Phoebus's cart. Uh, yeah. That, for me, still remains some sort of glimpse of something incredibly compelling, the work that you did at the Roll Wright Stones and the Tempest, and then taking it to this sort of cement pit of what was going to become the globe. I'm just curious about the experience really.
1: Well we were up there the other day up and getting into some panurhythmia dancing, um Peter Durnoff and yeah. the uh, the Bulgarian uh dancing and about 12 of us went up to dance at the stones, at the Rollright Stones on St. George's Day. It was a beautiful day. And the lady who was leading it intuitively felt that we, it was too powerful to dance inside the circle, that we weren't ready for that yet. And so we danced next to the circle in the southwest side of the circle. But her partner, who is a very strong seer and psychic, came to observe and be the earth father and he had an incredible vision while we were dancing of the rollright stone circle containing or holding a dragon uh, an actual dragon energy and that as we danced and sang this dragon uncoiled i mean it was st george's day so it was mm. a it was in the air that day but this dragon uncoiled and he said he could even see that the irregularities of that wonderful stone circle were to do with the tail of the dragon and the coiling in to the center of the dragon, the density of matter at the center. But the dragon as a form of energy, rose up in the circle and observed us and was conscious of us. Um, he was able to ask it certain questions. He said there was also a jester, a clown, a kind of clown character with the dragon as well, which was quite I- I- interesting. But it wasn't, a, it wasn't a frightening dragon. You know, it was just a, an, something about it absolutely made sense about what stone circles are, that they built and worked with the stone and with the land to to kind of create a place where the dragon could rest. Mm. Yeah, like you'd buy a little doggy bed for a dog or a cat that would be the place that they could go and be found or rest. I don't know, it was a powerful day. There was, of course, a book by uh, Paul Devereux back in the day when we were doing it called The Dragon Energy. He'd named his book and he had studied uh, the magnetic, electromagnetic fields around stone circles. So he'd come to it with a uh, scientific approach and yet it also used this dragon energy word. But it was quite a revelation to me about that circle and about what happened back in 1990 for, for Claire and I and all of us who, who went and played there and how it led us to the globe and trying to bring some of that dragon energy to, um, to the concrete box, as you say. yeah, We're sitting in it. But it, the concrete box and Phoebus Cart, you see at the time in my 30s, I was so interested and uh, aflame with the light with this idea of that you could open yourself to this light in the universe and that the light was love and that the light was ancestral wisdom and it was it was fast and creative and penetrating everywhere and and the cart i never paid much attention to the cart but i find this lockdown has really turned my attention to the cart and that the cart isn't a passive man-made thing that carries the sun through the sky the cart is an equivalent equivalent force in the universe, and that this matter or matter, mother, dark earth energy is not just something beneath our feet that we plant plants in and we move about and build houses with. If you think about it, it, it's shot through the cosmos, all the universes of the cosmos, just as much as the light. When you think about the great planets and suns and the dark holes, the amount of dark matter in the cosmos and universe, it's equivalent to the light. It, it's not passive. It's not, though it's a receptive thing and it can hold, it's different than the light. It's equivalent. And I've been trying to get my psyche and my spirit around that and hold that. It's just as alive as the light. I'm realizing how much, as a Christian raised boy, I've been. Thought to pray towards the light and raise things to the light, rather than bringing the light into matter and treating the bride and the matter. And I'm sorry I fall into gender descriptions; it's just an old way of describing it. But but perhaps it's to do with the um the righteous calls for um, Black Lives Matter and Need To and Times Up. That that it's time we recognise that that darkness and matter. Is an equivalent loving force in the cosmos yes. to the light, yeah. you know, and and the brightness and clarity and logic and rationale that that we've all been drawn to since 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 it became clear.
0: You will remember, Hillman used to rail against uh, our aversion to Duende, our aversion to darkness, yeah. and he'd say the problem. He wasn't. He wasn't virulently anti Christian, Hillman, but he saw elements of it as problematic or the way that it had been interpreted. And he said, The problem is the mandate of modern Christianity is this it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. <laughs> and and i am you know absolutely a, a child of that kind of behavior if i don't track it in myself and i'm very ge- i'm gentle i'm gentle with myself about it but i notice that, that that's ingrained it's seeded in there and to move into the manure to move into the you know the difficult materials um i'm younger than you but i'm 50 in october How are you Uh, And I can feel my dad, who I adore, hasn't often given me direct advice. (laughs) But but one of the things he did say was at the end of my 20s, he said, if if there's something you really, really want to build and it's going to take a, a kind of good natured aggression to get just to get the thing done if you're anything like me, do it in your 30s because the journey will deepen and sweeten and grow more complex from that point on. But if you're talking about graft, get it done now. Mm. And I, I took that to heart as well as I could. And I was, you know, a, a pugnacious, pugilistic guy in my 30s. And I made lots of mistakes, correct and otherwise, but I find now, and knowing that my, my energy levels are not what they were, the issue of memory as a storyteller is so important. And I my memory isn't what it is. I can't remember things in the way that I could even five years ago. That partially, I have to say, could be to do with the fact that you're living alone in a cottage for a year. I'm just not having lots of conversations. But at the same time, the deliciousness of growing older is very present to me too i feel something of a relief about it i wasn't a very good young person <laughs> you know there are people i really admire they were great at being young <laughs> yeah i know what you mean and i I, I, I never quite pulled it off yeah
1: i know what you mean
0: yeah yeah Well, I must, you know, the 50s
1: have been my favorite decade, I think, of all my decades. I'm 61 now. Wow. I I think you've got a great decade to look forward to. (laughs) I think your father's got some good advice about what to do in the 30s. You know, that it's good to plant something like with with some graft, dig that hole and get it planted. Because it's true that the things that I planted in the 30s are very rich for me now. The learning from them is very rich. But I, if the 50s are much more enjoyable period of time. There's some massive griefs in there as well. But what was I saying? Oh, this loss of memory. I I feel this too. The change of memory. See, I'm wondering if memory is a bit like you know the memory inside this computer, which is all files. And then you've then you've also got the ability of the computer to link with the internet and just be receiving things. And it may be that the when well, you've got to think of Robert Bly, maybe that the loss of memory is is making space. It's going to come to you
0: mm.
1: perhaps more directly as a channel from from the collective consciousness. I see. And you don't have such a responsibility to hold it yourself. <laughs> and these, things that, these brilliant things that Robert Bly says, though he doesn't speak at all. Mm. But one of the last times I was with him, we were about to go out and cast a play, cast some parts in Nice Fish and i was sitting at the breakfast table with ruth his his wife uh, lovely ruth and i said to her you know what what should i be looking for what do you like in an actor what 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 is this thing of casting actors what's important and and she said i don't know i don't know and then robert came in in his pajamas to get newspaper um and he hadn't spoken for much since we'd been there and she said robert what 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 do we like in an actor? Why why is Mark uh, a good actor? She said to him, and immediately he just looked at him and said, "Cause he doesn't know who he is." Wow.
0: <laughs> and
1: went and walked away, cause he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> and, well, that's what he said. Mm-hmm. And and so maybe his memory's not there, but man, is his ability to to channel down.
0: I had the experience of traveling with him on and off a little bit, till just before that period, probably around the time you were doing Peer Gint. Yeah. That was when I got to know him. And he was still, you know, functioning, teaching. We told stories together on occasion. And I noticed he had not quite a sort of telepathic gift, but it was something like it. And he could move into people and conversations and, and rooms. Yeah. And he would unearth whatever... Was longing to be said that hadn't been. Yeah. He he had an X-ray surgery, and he came to stay with me once and said, "I want you." He said, "I want you to take me to my teacher, Doctor Nurkbash in in London, my Sufi teacher." So we drove up through the traffic, and we were th- moving through Notting Hill Gate, I think. And he remembered he'd been there before, and he said to Ruth, and I don't think they'll mind me saying this. He said, I wonder how conscious I was the last time I was here. Now, Robert doesn't really use a word like conscious very often. No. Not publicly. No. But I never forgot it. That's
1: very interesting. Does consciousness... I mean, Nabokov always praised the memory, and I value the memory too, and I'm sad when I can't remember things. But does the memory... Does the holding of memory, is there a consciousness that's beyond memory, you know, that's, that's more open and to do with this this thing we open the conversation today with about being raw and present and not reheating old solutions, you know. I, I used to forget my lines even in Twelfth Night quite regularly on stage. And the the rest of the company became aware of this, <laughs> and 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 it was, there would was be this delightful moment where they would realise that I wasn't coming in on cue, and and they would all turn with smiles on their faces to Lady Olivia. <laughs> and, oh, now let's hear what Mark, how Mark's going to make up Shakespeare now, and I would have to make something up in iambic pentameter that suited the situation. But it was very, it absolutely brought us live. I was just talking with my old friend, Mike Alfreds, who's my acting mentor, and we were again talking about why does does the theater come to life in such a special way when things go wrong, when people forget their lines, that there's a life that comes into the room. So there are benefits to losing one's memory, Martin. I'm taking a positive spin on this.
0: You are incredibly positive in that regard. <laughs> I'm in a rather pragmatic zone because I know it's only days till I'm in front of a group of people. And um Yeah. Yeah, it'll it'll then be do, can I simply because I take the policy, which I, I think you do too, as far as I can tell, of a, a constant reimagining. So Every time I'm telling Tatterhood or the handless Maiden or, or Parcival, to some degree I am reporting back what I can see in front of me at that moment and if that changes in iteration from the night before, that's fine. Yeah. otherwise they, the voltage is just not present for me. You know you
1: I, I, I think you're so right and though um, uh, though Billy Connolly is a slightly tragic example, because he has eventually now moved beyond his ability to perform. He's moved, you know, away from his memory. When he performed at the Globe with a purple beard, (laughs) he painted his beard purple because he'd read that Elizabethans did that, which they did. I'd never seen him live. I'd seen this in recordings, but I'd never seen him live. And he would start a story, and then a bit like the way I speak, it reminded him of a side story and then another diversion story and then another. And eventually he would get to a place where he'd say, oh, I don't know where I am. Where am I? What was I What was fucking talking about? What were, you know, and, and people would offer up different ideas. No, no, I wasn't. And and then it would come back. And, oh, yeah, that's right. I was here. And he would go into it again. And they were the most wonderful moments, really wonderful because we 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 all felt this incredible privilege he's really just we're just sitting in a pub with Billy Connolly and he's making it up now now maybe maybe some of that was not i don't i don't know how clever he was at using that to get people into the present but it felt genuine you know and i guess with the tragedy of him now now you know mm. not being able to perform maybe it was genuine but he used it in a very very present creative way to to bond the whole group in the present moment of chaos and time and be fertile. And I think it's such an important thing. It's a very interesting thing how to get it into stories. Sometimes I'll go to Shakespeare plays like a King Lear or Hamlet and Macbeth and they are done very well, but no one's ever got lost. I feel like not one actor on stage was ever allowed to get lost. And unless we get lost, I don't think we grow. I don't think we change unless we go through in all the initiatory stories. You know more about them than I do. It, they always involve a forest or a sea journey or something that where you really are just properly lost. And I hear it in great music. I hear it in Miles Davis and in Beethoven. They They write into the pieces, places where Glenn Gould has to make up a bit of Beethoven, <laughs> which is an interesting experience. And I noticed it, I made a film with the great Adam McKay. Do you know who I'm talking about, Adam McKay? Yeah. Really interesting, wonderful filmmaker and on set with the different actors, very brilliant actors. And for each of us, he would, he would in the script, he'd give a bit of a speech. That he'd say, oh, well, we'll just make something up. Make something up here. Just, I want you to say something about this. And then in each take, that was the bit that he would focus on. Oh, try this. Oh, that's great. Very encouraging. Very encouraging, laughing, and and just just always leaving a little bit that was unscripted. Then you go even further to someone like Terrence Malick, the great filmmaker Terrence Malick. And Terrence, when you get there, just says, just treat the words as a kind of indication of what you might say. Uh, we, don't, we don't bother about that. You know, you just... They're just there as ideas. You can say whatever you want. And and uh, we're not going to worry about continuity. Here's a camera. It can see you between these two places. I was playing Satan. You and Jesus just, <laughs> just wander around. Just don't stand together like that. Always a little bit like that. But go wherever you want. And and then he just keeps keeps rolling and rolling. And he's hunting, hunting for accidents and chance. And like this picture right now you have of me, Mm. the light is behind me. He never has light in front, always behind, cracking through, cracking through like Mm. through the little holes in my hat, breaking through matter, never presenting things. Uh, So I've been interested to be led quite by chance to these these directors who are actually looking for the thing that you and I fear, which is it will lose our memory of what the story is. We'll lose, I'll lose the lines of Jerusalem when we revive Jerusalem next year. I won't be able to remember. I think there's a positive way to look at this, a really positive way that it's very collective. It's very binding and uniting us with the audience when we lose our
0: way. There was a time one night we were in the pub with our mutual friend, Harry Burton, and you said, oh, I've had an idea. Pick up your pints. So we walked out onto the street we walked down the street and we came to this little door and you said i can get us in this little door and we went through the little door then we went into another little door and then you said now there're going to be some steps climb up this don't don't I'll just climb up the steps and we climbed up the steps and suddenly we were on the stage of the globe <laughs> and you've brought us up through the little trapdoor in the middle, <laughs> and the three of us sat with our pints on the stage, in the moonlight. Yeah, uh, and we volleyed old Celtic. You know, there's a there's an album by Van Morrison called "Poetic Champions Compose," beautifully grandiose. And we volleyed back and forth Shakespeare and old Celtic stories and the rest of it. And it was a a terribly difficult time in my own life. But that gave me tremendous nourishment afterwards. It's interesting, isn't it, that an encounter that only necessarily lasts a couple of hours can be a warming coal. Rumi always says, learn a story by heart because it'll die of cold on the page.
1: Wow, wow.
0: Learn a story by heart because it'll die of cold on the page. Wow. And then, you know, in another line by Rumi, if you haven't been fed, become bread. And that's part of... I have a deep interest in theatre, deep interest in storytelling. A place I want to go in my 50s is working with larger groups of actors where we have the bones of the thing. Good. But only the bones. Good. Because then this element could happen, which you've just described, which is more than personal imagination, maybe even more than cultural imagination. And you get into the kind of realm that people like Henri Corbin used to talk about. He always talks about, and you get this in Islamic cosmology, everyone has an angel up ahead. Everyone has an angel up ahead. And the individuation of you is not the issue it's the individuation of your angel by the actions you spend and your time on the earth that really matters. Yeah, It's lovely. So suddenly the service you are involved in goes out to antelopes and badgers and curlews and the families that you love. But it also moves into this angelic dimension as well. Yeah. And that's... Thinking about Jerusalem for a moment, now you would know this and I I, from a great distance, am I right in thinking that the final iteration of the script after it going through different stages suddenly happened pretty quick when you had actors actually in the room reading?
1: Yeah, very, very much so, yeah. I think um, it opened in July 2009 at the Royal Court but the script, I believe, had come across my desk when I was at the globe, called St George's Day, actually, and it was a very, very wonderful, raw, rough script. I'd been to see everything that Ian Rickson and Jazz had worked on from mojo on, you know, so I knew the territory, but this was a this was a really raw He actually had a brother who was jumping at the local fair and Drug dealers came down from London. It was quite different. The kids were there, and the wild, feral scenes between the kids and him were there. But the script I actually signed up to do, Rooster, was in a wheelchair, and there were ramps all around the trailer. He was, <laughs> wow. yeah, he was he was disabled uh, from from his motorcycle accident, not just uh, yeah. his leg limpy as, as 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 I eventually played him. And we signed up to that one. And then when we got closer, a few months, a month or so before rehearsals began, Jez and Ian and I had a great visit to Padstow to watch their um, St. George's Day Carnival. And and we we spent a bit of time together talking about the whole St. George and the Maiden and the Dragon mythology, which had been a very important story from when I was running the Globe, particularly the version of the story where, Saint George doesn't kill the dragon. He goes and sings a song outside the cave and the vibrations of the sound of his song um, stir the dragon to awaken and the dragon comes out of the cave and coils up his his lance. He's up on a horse, of course, riding on the four elements and, and uplifted with his spear of imagination, of light or whatever. But the dragon, as it coils up the spear towards him, threatening to eat him or to burn him more, to whatever. It, it sheds its four bodies of the legs that walk on the earth, the scales that swim in the water, the wings that fly in the air, and the fiery breath. And, and it sheds and loses all these four bodies through probably initiatory processes as it coils up to the sound of his song. And at the top of the spear, lo and behold, the dragon is the maiden. Mm. And, and what's revealed is the soul, the maiden, and she sits on his horse uh, with St. George. And even George has the lovely Geo in it too, that his his name guides him towards the earth. And he doesn't find her, of course, in the town, in, in civilization, he has to ride out into the wilderness and he finds her in that cave of dark, dense matter, frightening matter with just smoke and terrible bad breath of the dragon coming out of the cave, you know, and he goes up near, gets his little lute or guitar or whatever, and sings a song, the right song, which is what's so beautiful about the alignment of Shakespeare's birthday and death day, mythically, because we don't know the fact of the matter to St. George's Day, that it's that song, it's that song of the English language, as particularly as Shakespeare worked on it. And lately with my friends, we've been talking about actually you know, because I imagine a larger consciousness behind the authorship that there is a consciousness in there that's trying to make the English language a sacred sounding language like the Judaic language or Sanskrit or other ancient Greek languages that the vowels and things are aligned. And then he and the maiden come back into the town to, to act in service. I don't know where I've got lost again, but, then, <laughs> but I would want to go back to another thing about the audience when we're speaking, you know, when I'm acting or you're speaking, yes, there is the present audience in each of those souls as an angel, but there is also this conscious, a larger audience that, we're, that we are giving something, We we are being bred to. We are being something to be eaten by that larger audience when we play, aren't we, or when we tell stories.
0: Yes, I've always felt... You know, it's it, an old indigenous idea. Is most of this world belongs to the dead, mm. and so there's always an audience of your beautiful, lofty, befuddled ancestors, <laughs> all around spilling their beer and hurling things at you and praising you and watching you fail magnificently over and over again. So, I mean, that, and I, I'm interested in you know what again in this sense of not wanting to reheat old meals, one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, what do I want to do to occupy my time in these, these... Every night I go to bed and before I crash out, I always say, this is extraordinary. Thank you very much. Donk. And then I'm asleep. I'm interested in what I spend my time on. And the that old phrase, the matter of Britain. And of course, the matter of Britain is... Is, is is infused with Islamic consciousness, which people don't seem to twig, is that everything that is majestic about the Arthurian romances, by and large, doesn't come from Wales, doesn't come from Scotland. It comes from the Pyrenees. It comes from Moorish Spain. It comes from this amazing moment in the 12th century, in the 13th century, a little bit, where suddenly the old rural Celtic stories of what we think of as Celtic Britain moves down into what we now call the south of France and hits the appreciative consciousness and firepower of Islam, which is where we get chivalry, it's where we get gallantry. So this notion, as is sometimes floated to me, that aren't you pleased now, Martin, that Britain has floated off from... Uh, Europe and and we have our own indigenous stories back and I'm saying well that's all well and good but you must understand that that's infused with as I said Moorish Spain the Middle East you know if if you're looking for some sort of imagined quote-unquote purity it's it's not about that Um, so anyway where I'm going with all of this is that in its own extraordinary way, Jerusalem seems to hit something of that, that nerve. You remember all the people queuing all night long to get tickets, yeah. that incredible yearning to be in the warm, nourishing dark yeah. with a real fucking story. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, we all would love to see this happen again. How do you feel 10, 15 years on about moving into the force field of the rooster again? I'm dreaming about
1: it a lot. You know, there's a part of me that that, uh, feels pressure when something's been that um, resonant and timely, uh, what will happen. But I'm very pleased that Mackenzie's going to come and be part of it again, so the two of us will be together And then as many people as can will join, but the young people now will need to be replaced. And many of them were loyal. There were nine members of that cast that stayed, even with small parts, stayed for the whole ride, 420 performances. So that's gonna be very different having new people come who may not have even seen the play or heard the play, but will know of it, you know, and come to join. I'm just gonna have to let go of old forms. It's gonna have a different meaning now. It's gonna have a different meaning. and also there's the issues of, uh, you know, diversity and uh, gender balance. We need to reimagine the whole thing, really, in a, in a good way. I'm excited but anxious. I, my body's a bit older. Can I smoke that much every evening? <laughs> Can I stand upside down? Can I um keep myself together? It, would, it shook my life up as much as it shook other people's lives up at the time. But I've done it before with Hamlet. You know, I played Hamlet at 16, 28 to 31, and then again at 40. And it was always a really rich experience to come back to it. Uh, and it's something, that, it's something that I read old actors, Irving, the famous ones that you can read about, Irving, Keane, Garrick. When they hit a play that was successful, they would revive it you know, uh, uh, quite regularly in the repertoire, maybe just for a couple of performances. They have a lot of plays in their memory, like you have a lot of stories. So I'm interested with Jerusalem to try and revive it every 10 years. That's what I felt at the closing of it in 2012, early 2012, that I would come back to it every 10 years, as long as I could do that. So this is the first revival now in my early 60s. And I hope there'll be one in my early 70s and one in my early 80s. And so the gap between Mackenzie and I and the young people is just going to get, it's going to get extended and wilder. But it is about essentially that song of a George uh, trying to awaken the dragon energy in the kids. That's what it was all about for me. And that was the positive thing about it, that Ian was always about, that, that he needs fire. What infuriates him is if it's not the true fire of the people who are around him. He doesn't want the bullshit. He wants their diamond. he wants their fire. And that's partly inspired by Robert Bly and other people I've been fortunate enough to be around as a young person who called me on when I wasn't being true to myself, when I was trying to live up to something else that wasn't as real. So I'm hoping that character will still have resonance and the play will still be powerful. I think, I, I think he touched, as you say, it really grew. It was channeled into the rehearsal room, and uh, Jez would arrive with all those stories. One day he just arrived with seven or eight speeches, uh, the giant story, all the different things, and he was listening and watching us and writing it as it grew up in the room. Yeah, maybe to some degree it was all, a lot of that en- energy from my point of view that I generated at the Globe that service coming into this story from my point of view. But Jez wrote it all, you know. I was just there as a lightning rod. Well, Mark, you've been very generous with your time. We should talk again. I don't know how helpful this would be to many people, but I think falling in love with chaos and darkness and matter is the step for us to try and sum it up, trying to be friends with that, for you and I with our memory and for other people with whatever is in their life. You know, to see it as a beneficent, nourishing, supporting aspect of our, of our consciousness, of our lives.
0: So you will have noticed, yeah, there's a bit of a theme in some of these conversations circling around uh, the poet Robert Bly, because he's been a, such an ally and an inspiration to many of us. So this poem is by Robert. I give it with all love and libation to mark. It's called Things to Think. Think in ways you've never thought before. If the phone rings, think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard, vaster than a hundred lines of Yeats. Think that someone may bring a bear to your door, may be wounded and deranged, or think that a moose Has risen out of the lake and he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own whom you've never seen. When someone knocks on the door think that he's about to give you something large tell you you're forgiven or that it's not necessary to work all the time or that it's been decided that if you lie down no one will die. Thanks to Ben Adicott for producing Smoke Hole. And if you'd like to help us out and get word out, think about maybe rate and review. You could subscribe, you could tell people, and generally, Jimmy the algorithm. <laughs>